No, I'm under no illusions, believe me. John chapter 6. Uh, children can be dismissed. This will be the last week our interns have them, and then uh, they'll have to go back to Brother Jeremy. Just have to put up with the put up with that. We appreciate those that work with our children. All right, John chapter six. It's a it's a rare thing to find an empty stadium uh, at a Super Bowl game to find an empty seat in the stadium at the Super Bowl. And uh, this was the case as one woman is sitting next to an empty seat and uh, one of her neighbors over on this side mentioned it, says it's surprising to see an empty seat. She said, well, uh, that was actually my husband's and uh, we bought it together, planned to come here uh, to the Super Bowl and, and he, between the time we purchased the tickets and now uh, he died. And so he said, well, I'm so sorry to hear that. And uh, after a minute went by, the, the man again said, it's, it's surprising that none of your relatives or friends would have come in his place. And she said, it is. I, I was surprised too. They all insisted on going to his funeral. So, um, <laughs> we all have priorities, right? I'm glad that yours is on track this morning and you're here. And so, uh, we're grateful for having you. Uh, we are talking about friends of Jesus and those that, uh, the people that he worked with closely and and I don't know about you, I've learned a lot through this, uh, just studying different lives that are a little bit more obscure. And today I want to interest, introduce you to another friend of Jesus. His name is Philip, and he's, he's listed in all four lists of the apostles. He is listed number five. He is the leader of the second group of four. Remember how we talked about last week, they kind of uh, sectioned that off, and he's the leader of that group. Uh, he's not as popular or well-known as the first group, James, John, uh, Peter, and Andrew, but uh, he is more well-known than most. And so as we read the Gospels, we start to see the character and the personality of this man, Philip. And with Philip, I don't know, but many of us, I think, will identify with him today. I know I sure did. And so let's look at some things about Philip. We're looking at John chapter 6, verse number 7. To begin with, actually, let's jump back up in verse number five. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them can take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, and then you go into the story. There's a lad here. We know very well the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But I want to talk to you today uh, for a few minutes on Philip, uh, the pragmatist. I believe Philip was a pragmatist. And a pragmatist is that character or conduct that emphasizes practicality or uh, a very earthly-minded type of thinking. And so let's talk today about the friend of Jesus, Philip, the pragmatist. Father, I pray you'd help us as we look this next few minutes at a man who we can all probably identify with. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you give us to be together here in your house. In Jesus' name, amen. Philip, the name Philip, is a Greek name, and it means simply lover of horses. And uh, I, that, that fits me. I grew up with horses and loved working with horses and 
have a scar above my eye that came from a horse. That wasn't so pleasant, but uh, I like, I always enjoyed that. But that's what his name means. Now, he had a Jewish name, no doubt, because the, all the apostles were Jewish, but uh, that's never mentioned. All we know him by is Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida. It was the city of Andrew and Peter. And uh, probably he went to school with them or knew them growing up. And considering their close relationship with James and John, uh, probably all four of these were close friends or at least knew each other well uh, from that area. In John chapter 21, uh, we see an interesting uh, uh, verse when Peter says he goes fishing after uh, he had kind of, uh, after the, the, before the resurrection, and I'm, I'm sorry, after Jesus had died. And, and so he says, I go fishing. There's some evidence that Philip, Nathaniel, and Thomas, they were all fishermen from Galilee. And, and uh, there's others that said, you know, we're going to go with you. And it lists those, actually seven of them, uh, that was uh, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John. And then the Bible says two others of the disciples most likely that would have been Philip and Andrew, who were always seen uh, in the company of the others. In all likeliness, the seven of these were co-workers and friends before they came to Jesus. And in one sense, this is a little surprising, uh, because you might expect Jesus to take a different tack as, as he is preparing, literally, to shake the very foundations of the world. You might expect him to scour the earth, and hold lots of interviews to find the most talented, the most uh, person with the most abilities, and the most gifted men in the world. Instead, he singles out a small group of fishermen. They are common men with unexceptional talents, with just average abilities. And later, the Bible calls them unlearned and ignorant men. And one, uh, and he, he chose these, and he basically said, yeah, these guys will do. This is who I'll use. And he did in a great and mighty way. I'm glad for that. Because we spend so much time in our life focusing on our abilities and our limitations. And God doesn't care so much about that. He just wants you. He just wants your heart. And he'll give you, he'll give you the ability to do what you need to do. When God says ride, he'll always provide the horse. And he'll give you the uh, ability and the, and, and the desire and all those things. He just wants your heart. He could do more with these uneducated fishermen than he could do with any self-important diplomat of the day. So what about Philip? We learn, uh, all that we learn about him comes from the book of John. There's really nothing in the other Gospels about him, so we're going to focus on this book. As we look at his life, we find that he was a little different than the others. Uh, Philip is often paired with Nathaniel. They were evidently very close friends. But Philip is even different from him. And as we look at these different snapshots of him, we find this pragmatic man. He's all about the process, uh, just the facts kind of guy, practical-minded, uh, not that forward-thinking. He was the kind of guy who often misses the big picture. Uh, maybe you're like that, or maybe you know somebody like that. Uh, focused only on the now. He was the kind of guy that was would sooner tell you what, why it can't work than to try to figure out a way to make it work. He was inclined to be a defeatist instead of a visionary. He was prone to logic, trying to figure things out, humanly speaking. And boy, oh boy, I don't know about you, but I identify with that. Trying to figure it out on a human scale. And sometimes we cannot solely depend on our logic. Sometimes our logic is flawed. Let me give you some safety facts from New York Minor Institute. Nearly all sick people have eaten carrots. Obviously, the effects are cumulative. 
An estimated 95.9% of people who die from cancer and heart disease have eaten carrots. 90%, 90% of all people involved in car crashes had eaten carrots within 60 days of that car crash. 83.1, I don't know who gets these numbers, 83.1% of juvenile delinquents come from homes where carrots were served regularly. Among the people born, this is a scary thought, among the people born in 1839 uh, who later ate carrots, there was a 100% mortality rate. The moral of it is eat bacon, not carrots, amen? That's, the, that's what I take from that. Sometimes our logic is skewed is all I'm saying. Sometimes we, we use faulty information to try to figure out, humanly speaking, what God's doing in our life or what He plans to do. We first meet Philip in John chapter 1, the day after Jesus called Peter, uh, uh, John, and Andrew. And apparently he was also in the wilderness following John the Baptist who had come to see him, and Jesus sought him out. But it's obvious that Philip also had a seeking heart. This is evident in John 1.45 when it says, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth. He had obviously been seeking the Messiah. The Bible says he found the Messiah. He did not stumble on him. He found him, and I believe he had been looking for him. Philip not only had a seeking heart, but he also had the heart of an evangelist. The first thing that he did when he met Christ and Christ called him, he rushes off to his good friend Nathaniel and he says, hey, you've got to come meet the man that is the Messiah, the one that's promised in the scriptures. And I tell you, friend, when you get a good dose of Jesus Christ in your life, the first thing you'll want to do is go out and find somebody else and bring them to the gospel as well. That's what, that's what uh, uh, Philip did here. And what's interesting is that as we go throughout the... We're going to look at three episodes in his life, but as we look at those three, we find that this is sort of a, a little out of character for him. So quick to believe. Uh, he seems very quickly convinced of who Jesus was, and he's usually not that decisive of a person. Telling his friend, come and see, and uh, being excited about who Jesus was, he was very quick to accept it. Let's look at some other scenes in Philip's life. We already read the first text, John chapter 6, where we look at the feeding. Now, uh, we're all familiar with the story, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, we've already looked at that miracle through the eyes of Andrew, but I would like to look at it through Philip's eyes. And here we begin to see the kind of man that Philip was. We already know by his words to Nathaniel that he was a student of the Old Testament. He loved the Bible and what it said. And so when Jesus said, follow me, uh, he followed him without hesitation. That was Philip's spiritual side. That was his uh, following the right way. But yet, just as we saw with Peter, there's often this contrast in the lives of the men we've looked at and in our lives as well. There is the spirit that wants to do the right thing, and there is the flesh that wants to do the wrong thing. And there is a daily battle within us of the flesh and the spirit. Even the Apostle Paul talked about this battle that he had with the flesh and the spirit. Uh, you, all you have to do uh, to know what I'm talking about on a small scale is walk up to a buffet. Amen? I mean, you walk up to the buffet and you're going to start having a battle uh, between what's good and what you really want. Because what's good is not what you really want. Our body doesn't necessarily want good things. Our flesh doesn't want good things. And so we have that battle going on. And uh, now he, he sometimes showed strong faith like he did in the beginning. And sometimes he showed weak faith. We do the same thing. So there, here uh, was a huge crowd. 
5,000 men, the Bible says, with families that they had. There could have well been 10,000. There could have been fifteen or 20,000 people uh, present that day. And it was getting late in the day, and they had not eaten. So this is when Jesus tests Philip. In verse 5 uh, that we read, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Why did he single Philip out and ask him? Now, John tells us why. In the next verse, and this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. It seems like it's possible that Philip was sort of the social committee chairman for this group here. We know that Judas handled the money, and uh, Philip uh, certainly uh, was, this would have fitted his personality to be uh, kind of in charge of arranging things, and the distribution of meals and supplies, and or maybe he was just naturally concerned with organization and protocol, uh, but he would be the type that would speak up in a planning session, as uh, we see several times here, I don't think we can do that. I think there's going to be a problem getting that uh, passed or that done. I love this so much. And don't miss this idea. Jesus is not looking to Philip for a plan. He's already got the plan. He's, but he's asking Philip as a test. He says, how are we going to, and, and I, I like to picture these type of things, and because Jesus meets us where we are. He was showing Philip basically what kind of person he was. So he looks over at Philip, and the way I pictured in my mind, because I look kind of visual about the Bible, I just picture a hint of a smile on Jesus' face as he says to Philip, how do you propose we feed all these people? And Jesus knew Philip, and he knew that he was already in his mind he was in counting mode. He was trying to figure this out. I mean, he had his iPhone out. He had it on the calculator. And he was doing the math. And he was trying to figure out. Now, let's see. Little Caesars, um, $5 a piece. Of course, he lived before. I know it's more now, but he lived before Biden economics. So it would have still been $5 a piece at that time. So uh, he says... Uh, he says $5, and uh, each pizza will feed four people uh, or two teenagers. And uh, so you take 15000 divided by... I don't think this is going to work. Now, how do you say, Pastor, how do you know he was doing that? Look at what he says in the next verse. His answer, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient. He's already been doing the math. He's got an idea. Uh, we, we don't have... And by the way, 200 penny worth, that's, uh, that's uh, basically about eight months uh, of... Uh, uh, salary, so that's presumably what they had amongst them. And he'd been already thinking about the difficulties of the food supply from the moment he saw the crowd. And I like Philip. I like him. You know, look, you know that story, Mary and Martha, where uh, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus? I want you to get frustrated by that. People who just sit around when there's work to be done. Uh, I can't say too much because Jesus commended her. But uh, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha walks out, hands on her hips, you know. Could you tell her to come help me in the kitchen? I identify with Martha, don't you? See something that needs to be done, and you want to get it done, and I identify with Philip here as well. Uh, and, and, and it's sad, because here's what we do. We do exactly what Philip did. He did not sit there and think, praise God, look at these people. Jesus is going to be able to preach to all these people. Oh, he's, he's doing math. Trying to figure out what we're going to do to feed her 200 penny worth and how far it'll go. How often in our life do we squander opportunity because we only see impossibility? Let me ask you a question. Are you more apt to look at a situation and see difficulty or opportunity? How do you look at situations? I believe Philip looked at a situation and he saw difficulty. 
And I love how Jesus deals with us because he does with us the way he does Philip here. He meets him where he are. Oh, how our Savior knows us. And we're so quick to get our calculators out and calculate the risk of what our God wants us to do. Uh, whatever we see in the Bible and uh, trying to figure out if it's worth it or if we knew it. And often we'll do the same thing. I, I don't think I can do this. I don't want to take the risk or I can't handle the cost. And I love how Jesus so patiently takes Philip and us from where they are to where they need to be. Because again, Jesus did not need Philip to come up with a plan. He already had it all planned out. He already knew what he was going to do. He had this all worked out. That's why I think there was a little bit of a, a, maybe just a hint of a smile on his face when he asks Philip, because he wants Philip to work himself in an, into an impossible situation. And God loves to take your impossible situation and blow it up and make it happen. That's, a, that's an awesome thing. So, we think that if God's work will be done, often, we think it depends on my plan. Haven't you ever done that? Think, boy, if this is going to get done, it's going to depend on my plan. It's got to be just right. Now, I got to tell you today, in all honesty, um, I love my ministry here. I love being your pastor. It's a great joy in my life. But God's work was being done before I got here. And God's work will be done after I leave here, which incidentally will be in 43 years. I plan to retire at 92, so you're still stuck with me for a while. He does not need your plan. He just needs you, and He needs you to get on board with His plan. Back to what we sang, trust and obey. Just trust Him. He's got the plan. We don't have to try to figure everything out all the time, but that's who uh, Philip was. And I identify. I like, if you came to me today and asked, what's your five-year plan? I'd have an answer for you like that, because I have one. What's your ten-year plan? I got that answer too. I, because I like that. I like my, I have a one year and a five year and a ten year and, and, uh, where I would like to be, where I'd like the church to go to and, and what I'd like to see God do here. I have these type of visions, but, uh, we better not let our five year plan get in the way of what God's got for us. Because a lot of times, uh, the, the idea of being submissive to what God has for us means that we have to be willing to hand Him our calendar. We have to be willing to hand Him our plan and let Him work His plan. Oh, we don't like that always, but that's what we need. So the problem is that anything that doesn't make sense to us, we sometimes avoid doing. So the Bible says, very clearly, all throughout, to give a tithe. And we ought to tithe, and that's uh, 10%. And so the Bible's very clear as well that the 90% goes further than 100%. It uh, means that you are more blessed if you give part of what you have away. Hang on. That doesn't make any sense, right? If you use your calculator, if you use your human reasoning, that makes no sense. Yet I could pull probably 20 people out of the audience right here, and you could testify along with me the amazing things God's done because you've been faithful in your giving. The amazing thing that He has, uh, that you, the blessings you've seen showered from heaven because you have been faithful in your giving. Why don't we just get on board with God's plan and not focus on our own? He needs your trust and obedience. The, anything that seems like a risk to us, 
we shy away from. And in this story, was it risky to bring a boy with a sack lunch and he didn't have much, two sardines and five hush puppies. Was it a risk to bring this boy to Jesus as a solution for 20,000 hungry people? It was a little bit of a risk. You could get laughed at for one. Was it risky to start handing out food from your little bag or basket that you had and, and uh, you've got 50 and then 100 people waiting for what you've got and you've got just enough for a couple people and then as they were handing out, it started to multiply. Was that a risk to start doing that? Yeah, it was a risk. Was it risky for a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years, who was considered unclean, to push her way through a crowd of people just to touch the hem of Jesus' garment? Yeah, that was risky. Was it risky for a leper to approach Jesus when he wasn't supposed to be approaching anyone? Yes, it was risky. But you will not see God do great things in your life unless you're willing to take a risk once in a while. To laugh is to risk appearing the fool. To weep is to risk appearing weak. To reach out to one in need is to risk involvement. To love is to risk not being loved in return. To love, uh, to live is to risk dying. To hope is to risk despair. Uh, to try is to risk failure. But risks must be taken because the greatest hazard in our life is to risk nothing. Because if we risk nothing, uh, we will not be anything, we will not have anything, we will not do anything for God. That may avoid sorrow, it may avoid suffering, but you cannot learn, you cannot change, you cannot grow, you cannot live without taking some risks. Do something for God. I found this little poem I thought was neat. There was a very cautious man who never laughed or played. He never risked, he never tried, he never sang or prayed. And when he one day passed away, his insurance was denied. For since he never really lived, they claimed he never died. I don't know about you, friend, but I want to live. Amen? I want my life to mean something. I want to impact someone. And I don't want to just exist. I want to have a purpose. And God has that for you. He has it for you. It's in his plan. Philip had been there when Jesus changed the water into wine. Uh, he was there as Jesus healed people. He had seen the changed lives. And he, when he saw this great crowd, he became overcome by the impossible. He lapsed into his natural pragmatic thinking. So much so that when Jesus tested his faith, he responded with open unbelief. Lord, it can't be done. Can't be done. And from a humanly, purely human perspective, he's right. It can't be done. You can't feed 5,000 people with a with a sack lunch of one boy. Can't do that, humanly speaking. A denarius, a pennyworth that you mentioned here, was uh, one day's wages for common labor. So if, uh, if he had that many, it would be eight months' wages between all of them. This wasn't enough to give everyone a snack pack, a bag of peanuts. What you get in the airplane? Couldn't even give them that. In other words, impossibility. But the power of God wasn't even in his field of vision. And it often isn't in ours either. A lot of times we operate outside the power of God. We operate in our own ability, in our own purview, without the power of God, and wonder why great things don't happen. Because you and I cannot accomplish it on our own. We've got to have the power of God there. And here, this is what he was doing. He was looking at life without the power of God. I love this phrase. I use it often with young people. Whether you think you can or you think you can't. You're right. Take a risk. Do something for God. And now, I like how Andrew, he had the, a hint of the possible. He brings that boy to Jesus with the lunch. Not sure what this can do, but it's something. 
By the way, when you give your something to God, He'll do great things with it. Amen? It'll be small. It won't be much. I mean, you don't have that much to offer. But when you give what you have, He can do great things with it. Just obey and just trust. What could God do with and through you if He allowed Him to grow your faith? What limitations are in your life right now because you see difficulties instead of opportunities? All right, number two, if you'll go to John chapter 12, we'll look at another episode in his life. John chapter 12, I call this the visitors. We have another insight into Philip's character here. And I think uh, we can see he's kind of an overthinker. He's worried about protocol. He lacks boldness and vision, and it limits his ministry to others. When he has a great opportunity to make a big impact, he misses it again. Look at verse number 20 of John 12. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. So here you have some God-fearing Gentiles probably coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. And John includes this, and it's important for us to understand what was starting to take shape at this time in history. The door was closing on Judaism because they had rejected the Messiah, and it was opening to Gentiles. This was an unheard of thing in their world. And I'm glad for it, because I am a Gentile, and so are most of you. I'm glad that God is the Savior of the world, not just of one people. And so he, with the door of the Gentiles, was opening up later, of course, Peter, and then uh, mainly Paul would take the gospel to the Gentiles. These Greeks that came here were interested in Jesus, and they sought out Philip. Maybe it was because he had a Greek name like they did, or maybe because he was the social committee chairman, like I mentioned a while ago. Maybe he was just the first one they saw. I don't know. At any rate, they came to Philip and they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And immediately, Philip, being the man he was, pulls out the manual. We got to do things by the book, after all. Here's a bunch of Gentiles, and they're coming to see Jesus. So he goes to the mantle. Let's get, let's see, go to G, 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 Gentile. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 5, and 6, Go not into the way of the Gentiles. In any city of the Samaritans entered ye not, but rather go into the lost sheep of Israel. In Matthew 15, 24, he says, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's the manual. That was what he knew. That's what he had heard. And but by the way, I ask you, does this mean that Jesus did not care about Gentiles? Not at all. Uh, this At this point in his ministry, we're simply talking about priority and primary focus. Now, we, tr we support the Croker family. They are missionaries to the Mennonites in Bolivia. And when they go down there, they're in the process of getting down there right now. And uh, when they get down there, their focus will be on the Mennonites of Bolivia. Does that mean that they will not have anything to do with any other Bolivianites, whatever that is? No, it's just their focus. That doesn't mean they don't love and care and reach other people as well. That's their primary focus, and that's where Jesus was here. Jesus himself had called himself the Savior to the Samaritan woman, yet the focus of his ministry was to the, was to the Jews. And uh, that was his focus, but I'm glad he's also a Savior of the world, not just Israel. But here's Philip, and these Greeks come, and he vets them before he brings them to Jesus. That's what he's kind of doing inside, vetting them. Are they, I mean, what do I do? They want to see Jesus. By the way, can I tell you the answer is always bring them to Jesus if somebody wants to see Jesus, okay? That's what they need. But that's not what he did. 
uh, because they were Gentiles. What do I do? I have to do things by the book. He was pragmatic. And listen, sadly, we all do the same thing, kind of a little. We do the same thing in our life. We think certain people are candidates for the cross, and some are not. Can I tell you, everybody is a candidate for salvation. Everybody's a candidate for the cross. Moral people, religious people, imprisoned people, drug addicts, trans people, LGBT people. Everyone a, is, a, is a candidate for the gospel. Everyone is a candidate for salvation. Jesus loves all of them. There's a Baptist preacher in Tempe, Arizona, uh, who preaches regularly about uh, how he hates gays because God hates gays. Let me tell you something, he's wrong. God does not hate anyone. He hates sin, but he does not hate any one person or individual. He died for them just like he died for you and he died for me. And we didn't never ever look at any group of people or any uh, type of person and say they're not a candidate. I mean, I am, but they're not. We need to be very careful. Never, it is never our job to decide whether someone is a candidate for salvation. It burns me up that in our town here, and you've seen it, you're out and about, but we have churches in our town that fly rainbow flags with the things. We accept everyone. Because, and why that upsets me is because it, the implication is that places like Bible Baptist and others don't accept people like that, and that's 100% wrong. We do accept people like that and love on them just like they would. Uh, but just because we do not encourage the sin or the behavior uh, of that sin does not mean we don't love them. Uh, everybody's welcome to come here. And every time I drive by, I just get a little bit of, uh, just a little bit upset because the implication is they're not welcome here and they are welcome here. Uh, it is not love, by the way, to tolerate someone's sin. It is not love to leave them where they are. Real love uh, gets a person, uh, brings, uh, gets them saved, first of all, and then gets them cleaned up and away from their sin. Love calls sin out. That's what Jesus did. But, praise the Lord, Philip had a good heart. He didn't just send him packing. So he said, uh, let's take him to my good buddy Andrew. Why? Andrew's always bringing people to Jesus. It doesn't matter who it is. He even brought his loudmouth brother Peter to Jesus and then... Uh, had to deal with that the rest of his life. So 22, Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Philip was by the book. No precedent for introducing Gentiles to Jesus, so he gets Andrew's help. They take him to Jesus. Of course, Jesus received them gladly because he said in John 6, 37, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Hallelujah. It's always the right thing to bring people to Jesus. One more. If we go to John chapter 14, we'll look at one more. The last night. The scene is the upper room, the last supper. This is the same evening where they, where they argued about who was the greatest. This was the night that Jesus washed all their feet. And sometimes we talk about Peter, the foot-in-the-mouth apostle, the one always saying the wrong thing and saying something dumb and putting his foot in his mouth. Uh, well, he wasn't the only one because Philip's about to do the same thing. Uh, of all the foolish and ignorant things and statements said by the disciples, this one took the cake. Jesus' heart is heavy tonight. This is uh, the, day, the night before uh, the next day he would give his life on the cross for us. He's spending his last evening with these men. He wants to comfort them. 
He wants to encourage them for the days ahead. And he told them, he starts out the chapter by telling them, let not your hearts be troubled, uh, trying to calm them. He promised that he's going to prepare a place for them. And then in verse 4, uh, he says, whether I, uh, I see, he also promised to return and receive him to, uh, them to himself. Then in verse 4, and whither I go, ye know, and the way we know. Uh, the place obviously was heaven, and he was the way there. But they were a little slow to catch on. So Thomas spoke for them all, and he said this. We talked about this when we looked at Thomas. Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Okay, uh, that's a little slow. You know that kid in school that sniffed the glue a lot and stuff? This is, this is a, a little bit slow. And, and so, But Jesus is patient, and he says, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Makes it very, very clear. By the way, this knocks out a lot of religions in the world because this is only one way. The gospel is an exclusive gospel. It's very simple. Thank God it's free, but it is exclusive. There's only one way, and he says it. So he answered the question, how can I be saved? He said, I'm the way. Uh, his meaning was clear. He was going to his Father in heaven, and he is the only way to heaven. Hey, uh, the, you can't do anything about it if you're lost uh, by yourself or on your own. I must receive the one who said, I am the way. When I know him, I know the way, because he is the way, and there is no other way. I hope that we made that super clear. Jesus said himself, no man cometh to the Father but through me. He is the way. Many times Jesus spoke to his disciples about his Father. Now here's a great truth. I didn't even see this till this, actually this morning I was looking at this and, and I, I had this thought uh, that is really a sweet thing. The Old Testament, God is rarely referred to as a Father. Rarely. It's, uh, he's got a lot of names, but in the Old Testament, he's not a Father. This wonderful name for God of Father is really given to us through Christ. And He shows us that God is not only Elohim, the awesome God of creation, omniscient in His purpose, uh, omnipotent in His power, omnipresent in His person. Uh, God is not just Jehovah, the God of the covenant, wise and loving. God is not just Adonai, sovereign Lord of the universe who must be obeyed. He is God the Father, a God of comfort, a God of compassion, one who loves you, one who has a family and invites you in it. Isn't that wonderful? That's who He is. He is our Father. Uh, Jesus used this name for God over and over again, and it must have made an impact in John's life because in his gospel alone, he uses the expression, my Father, 156 times. That's a special thing. So Jesus adds in verse number 7, If ye had known me... You should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know Him and have seen Him. This is His deity. He is stating very clear uh, here that He is God. To know Christ is to know the Father. These are the different persons in the Trinity. They are one. To see Him is to see God. They had seen Him, they had known Him, and in that way they already knew the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's where Philip raises his hand. Don't you love that kid in class? Oh, used to. Are there any questions? Don't you raise your hand. And then you raise your hand. So he raises his hand. This is what Philip says. Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Show us the Father. 
Now, that's a pretty dumb statement to say on the heels of what Jesus just said. How could Philip say, had he not been sitting there listening? This is a profoundly ignorant statement, and it's also offensive that, that he didn't get it. After all he'd seen and heard, he'd witnessed all these miracles. He had been there with Jesus when he cast out demons. He had been Jesus' friend 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three years. If he truly knew Jesus, he should have known that he should have known the Father also. Add to that, Jesus has just said, just now said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Show us the Father. Something's missing. But you see, here's, I think, one little thing that's going on. Philip's not satisfied with a spiritual concept of who God is. If you, the Bible says that if we worship God, we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We like tangible things, don't we? That's why we like material things. Uh, we are rife with material and we like things we can touch. He wanted something more substantial, something he could see. And can I tell you, the craving of something substantial and visible is behind all ritual religion. We've got a God that we can serve and we see the person Jesus Christ. As we see him in his life, we also see who God is. Look at verse 9. Jesus saith unto him. I, I often wondered if Jesus didn't just... He was, he was tempted. He didn't sin. But the Bible says he was tempted and always like we are. Was he ever tempted with a throat punch, you think? You ever want to punch somebody in the throat? And, and you didn't because you didn't sin. But sometimes, sometimes we have that desire. I wonder if this wasn't one of those. Jesus said this, Have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me? Philip, he said, He that hath seen me, he hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Philip, what do you think's been happening for three years? Who do you think I am? How could Philip, of all people, so eager in his faith in the beginning, now show us the Father at the end? How could he ask this now? For three years, Philip had gazed into the very face of God and it still wasn't clear to him. His earthly thinking, his skepticism, his matter-of-factness, all these things blinded him about who Jesus was. After all this time, he was still thick-headed, uh, like many of us are, because all this time, he's trying to make these things fit into his calculator. And they don't fit. I can't figure this out. I don't know how God's going to do what He says He's going to do. And so He has earthly thinking. And every single one of us, dear friends, struggle with earthly thinking. Always having to deal with that. That was Philip. Philip, like the disciples and like us, was a man of weak faith, imperfect understanding. He was analytical. He wanted to be able to explain, humanly speaking, every aspect of what's going on. We like to do the same thing. Uh, so he's unable to grasp the big picture of who Jesus was, what Jesus could do, and most importantly, what Jesus could do through him. He's slow to grasp that. Can I tell you, somebody, may, I forget who made this statement. I read it a while back. But if you can explain it, it's not God. There's lots of things that this, you do this, and so that happens, and you do, but there's some things that you can't explain, and it's just God. I remember when I first decided to be faithful in tithing. And uh, there was a season in my life I wasn't much to my chagrin, but I decided to be faithful in tithing. And my, my pastor was uh, one of those guys who just had everything together. And so he uh, told me, you got to get a budget. Got to get a budget. 
work out a budget. So you take all your expenses and you take all your income and you got to work out a budget. You ever done that before? It's important to do that. And so I took all my uh, income and then all my expenses. My income and my expenses. You ever been there before? The income is a whole lot shorter than a list of expenses. And I got to tell you, I couldn't make a budget because it didn't make sense. I, I had a lot more going out than I had coming in. It just, it wasn't, this is why I, I couldn't uh, quantify in the beginning how I would spend what I've got coming in because what I had going out was just too much. And yet we started tithing by faith. You know what happened? Bills got paid. I don't know how. I really don't. I mean, I can look back. I try to do the numbers sometimes. How does this work? I'm getting this in. I'm going this out. And it just, how's that working? But bills got paid and God took care of us. And people would give us things and, and God would provide us stuff. And, and we got a vehicle given to us. And just different things happened that uh, God's provision came through over and over. And sometimes if you can explain it, it's not God. And I hope there's some things in your life you can't explain. I don't know how God's doing this, but He is, and praise God for it. Now, from the outside, we might look at this scene and say, well, <laughs> Philip's out. That's it for him. Uh, you can't use him to change the world. But this is exactly who Jesus uses. Imperfect people, weak in their faith, who mess up, who say dumb things, and God still uses them anyway. I'm glad because I fit all those things. And maybe some of you do as well. Jesus made him into a powerful preacher. He was one of the people who was uh, responsible for the foundation of the early church. And by the way, Jesus is in the same business still today. He, his strength is made perfect in your weakness. And thankfully, people uses, uh, thankfully, Jesus uses people like Philip. Because I am a Philip, and so are you. I have a, a problem at times and lack of faith at times, and Jesus still will use us. History tells us that Philip was used greatly in the spread of the early church. He was among the first of the apostles to suffer martyrdom. He died uh, just eight years after James was beheaded, and uh, he was he died by stoning in Asia Minor uh, just eight years after James. And uh, before his death, though, multitudes of people came to Christ under his preaching. Philip did what every one of us need to do in our life as well. We have to overcome our natural tendencies that hold us back from seeing God's best in our life. Our pragmatism, if you will. Our non-forward thinking, if you will. Our fear of taking risks and doing what God tells us to do. If you will just submit yourself 100% to Him, knowing He's already got the plan. I don't have to make a... He's got the plan. I just submit myself to Him. It'll amaze you what God will do with you, just like He did with Philip. Here's uh, Philip, I think, embodies these verses, and I'll read these in closing. 1 Corinthians 1.27. This is such a blessing. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the mighty. He hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things that are despised, hath God chosen. Have you ever felt despised? Oh, I have. And yet God has chosen it. Yea, and the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. Are you glad He uses foolish people? Amen. There's a foolish person standing in front of you right now. I got no wisdom to offer. I got no knowledge. God 
uh, will use you if you just submit yourself to him. And eventually, Philip got there. It took a little bit, but he got there. And God used him in a great way. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe today, in this room, I'm talking to a Philip. 